0: A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a very timely show today as we take a look into one of the biggest events of the year, coming this Sunday, and to my American listeners, no, it's not Halloween. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I'm so excited to have you here with me. This week, we're going to look at something very timely, and while it's yet to be seen if this show will age well, we're going to give it a go anyway. As many of you know, and maybe some of you don't, and that's okay, that's what we're here for, the 26th Conference of Parties, or COP26, starts this Sunday and continues through November 12th. So in chatting with the team here at South of 2 Degrees, we thought it would be a great idea to give you a primer into COP26 as it will dominate the news cycle and hopefully help you understand a bit of the history, what really happens there, and what we can realistically expect out of it. So let's start, well, at the beginning. In 1992, countries of the world got together in Rio, also referred to as the Rio Convention or the Earth Summit, but was technically the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. Also bear in mind there are two other Rio Conventions, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification and the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, both from the 1992 Summit. Anyway, in Rio, the UNFCCC or United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was officially opened for signatures and entered into force on the 21st of March, 1994, with the very first Conference of Parties, or COP1, occurring in Berlin, Germany, the 28th of March through the 7th of April, 1995. There, the first joint measures in international climate action were agreed on, called Activities implemented jointly. As per usual, had to have a crack marketing person come up with that one. It's important to note, part of what has made the UNFCCC successful thus far, as we pointed out before on this show, is that it was modeled after one of the most successful multilateral agreements in modern history, the 1987 Montreal Protocol. The UNFCCC borrowed a line from that In it that bound member states to act in the interests of human safety, even in the face of scientific uncertainty. Now, today this is referred to as the precautionary principle, which is considered when possibly dangerous, irreversible, or catastrophic events are identified, but scientific evaluation of the potential damage is not sufficiently certain. Obviously, we have come a long way from that and know that the science supporting anthropogenic climate change is irrefutable and the models of the ramifications get better every day. But it was a brilliant play at the time. Now, the purpose of the UNFCCC is to stabilize greenhouse gas levels, quote, at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, end quote, and do so, quote, Within a time frame sufficient to allow ecosystems to adapt naturally to climate change, to ensure that food production is not threatened, and to enable economic development to proceed in a sustainable manner. End quote. And while we like to speak on climate justice as if it's a newer idea, one of the central tenets of the UNFCCC was that Annex One nations, those that are the source of the majority of past and current emissions, and. Members of the Organization for Cooperation and Economic Development, or OCED, do the most cutting thereof. However, as longtime listeners of the show can attest, we want to make sure you get the whole story. And while Annex One seems like a great idea, you have to read closely. The fact that Annex One nations were both developed and members of the OCED ends up excluding China, India, and Russia, three of the top four greenhouse gas emitters. Now, most of us today think back to COP21 when the Paris Accord was signed that set the goal of limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees C and make every effort to keep it below 1.5 degrees C. But has the annual conference of parties always been so successful? Absolutely not. In fact, it was COP15 in 2009 that many view as an abject failure. Depending on your perspective or your nationality at the time, it was someone else's fault or failure. Quick aside, I'm far from an expert on these things, but when you refuse to acknowledge your own shortcomings, agreements usually don't go well. Anyway, at COP15, Several things happened. All references to 1.5 degrees C in past drafts were removed at the last minute. But more surprisingly, the earlier 2050 goal of reducing global CO2 emissions by 80% was also dropped. The U.S., not-so-subtly blamed China for a lack of a deal alluding to issues with the Kyoto Protocol, and developing nations blamed developed ones for, once again, having the wealthy wriggling out of responsibility for their own mess. While it was a failure in many respects, the quotes that came out of it were searing. Lumumba Diaping, the chief negotiator of 130 developing countries, said the deal had, quote, the lowest level of ambition you can imagine. It's nothing short of climate change skepticism in action. It locks countries into a cycle of poverty forever, end quote. Further, it was John Sauvin, executive director of Greenpeace's UK arm that said, quote, the city of Copenhagen is a crime scene tonight with the guilty men and women fleeing to the airport. And Lydia Baker of Save the Children said the conference had, quote, effectively signed a death warrant for many of the world's poorest children, end quote. Now, if you ever have a conference that ends like that, it's pretty hard to put a positive spin on it. But enough of the history. The Paris Accord did go into effect five years ago, and there is great hope and optimism as we head into COP26. But before we go too deep, We need to keep in mind that the latest report from Working Group 1 of the IPCC's AR6 report. Now, we've covered that in depth here at South of 2 Degrees, and if you missed the episode, I highly recommend you go back and catch up on it. For today, though, I'll just touch on a few highlights, as that report absolutely will be the most referenced document at COP26. For starters, let's address the question I get hit with a fair amount of the time. What is the difference between the UNFCCC and the IPCC? Very quickly speaking, the IPCC predates the UNFCCC by four years. The IPCC was established in 1988 by the United Nations Environment Program and the World Meteorological Association. Further, the IPCC played an important role in the creation of and, quote, is the most important source of scientific, technical, and socioeconomic information on climate change for the UNFCCC, end quote. Now, the UNFCCC uses a subgroup, the Subsidiary Body on Scientific and Technical Advice, or SBSTA, to work with the IPCC, request reports, and otherwise act as a conduit back to the UNFCCC for scientific info. Are you confused yet, especially with all this alphabet soup? Okay, let me put it this way. Pretend your parents need advice, so they use you to go request info from your grandparents. That's essentially the working relationship between the IPCC and the UNFCCC. Also, you can think of it simply as the science arm and the political arm. Whatever makes you happy. Okay. So back to the first bit of the IPCC's latest report, as it said that human activity has unequivocally warmed the planet and that anthropogenic climate change represents a code red to humanity. Basically, it explained how climate change has increased the extinction of species, fueled heat waves, droughts, extreme weather events, and floods, as well as explained the melting of the ice sheets and the rising sea levels. Sadly, it was in that report, that we should remember that no SSP, or shared socioeconomic pathway, prevents us from breaking 1.5 degrees C, even under the most aggressive scenario. However, we do have a narrow window where if we get off our proverbial backside and cut emissions to net zero by 2050, then there is a chance we can settle below 1.5 degrees C before the end of the century. Now, as we've discussed previously, this is the first year, thanks to the delay resulting from COVID-19, where parties of the Paris Accord were required to update their NDCs, or Nationally Determined Contributions. The first deadline was in July, and many missed it, including China, India, South Africa, and Saudi Arabia. Now, China updated their submission just a few hours ago before the taping of the show, but in its 78-page document, 62 pages in the English translation, Offered no new significant goals. According to the UNFCCC, NDCs, quote, form the basis for countries to achieve the objectives of the Paris Agreement. They contain information on targets and policies and measures for reducing national emissions and on adapting to climate change impacts. NDCs also contain information on either the needs for or the provisions of finance, technologies, In capacity-building for these actions. Countries communicate new or updated NDCs every five years, end quote. Now, you may be saying, yeah, Brian, I get that bit. But why does COP26 have so much excitement surrounding it? Well, part of the reason is we are woefully behind. As of just last year, the pledges at the time had us set to experience 3.3 degrees C of heating. Now, as a result... Many see COP26 as the defining moment, our last bastion of hope to keep catastrophic warming from happening before the end of the century. Now, while realistically landing below 1.5 degrees C is highly improbable, according to the latest IPCC report, COP26 President Alok Sharma is fond of using the phrase, keep 1.5 alive which became popular by island nations back at COP21 in hopes of aggressive action. So what actually happens, besides the watered-down info the news gives us, at the conference of parties, and what, if anything, can we realistically expect? Well, the first part is pretty straightforward. While the second requires something my longtime listeners know, I am very hesitant about and extremely skeptical of, and that's speculation. Now, I'll do my best to give you some insight as to what is likely, but please bear in mind this is one of those incredibly rare, and might I add, uncomfortable for me, instances where the info I provide is not backed up by peer-reviewed and responsibly published data, rather a hypothesis based on known inputs. For starters, there is a lot of talking at any conference of parties. World leaders will descend on Glasgow, nearly two dozen fresh from the latest G20, and many of them will speak to accomplish two things. First will be to highlight what their own country is doing to demonstrate both commitment and establish leadership. And the second is to call on other countries to do more. It's almost guaranteed the U.S. will blame China and India. China will likely blame developed nations, as it's classified as developing. And many island nations will hammer on everyone, and rightfully so, as those who have contributed the least, will be impacted the most. After the speeches, you will likely hear of green zones and blue zones on the news. Now, green zones are for the general public. It's where the activist speeches are, citizen summits, as well as all the swag you can likely imagine. The blue zones are designated areas for official delegations only. It is in the blue zones, after the world leaders have given their speeches and gone home, that ministers of the environment, lawyers, scientists, policy wonks, and expert negotiators sit down and have both formal and informal meetings to arrive at tangible action at the close of the conference. Great, Brian. So what are the goals and what are the likely outcomes? Well, the formal stated goals of COP26 are as follows. 1. Secure global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. 2. Adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. 3. Mobilize finance. 4. Work together to deliver so let's look at each briefly but in reverse order work together to deliver is all about acceleration and collaborative action between governments businesses and civil society it also entails finalizing what is referred to as the paris Rulebook. in effect the detailed rules that make the paris accord operational we will likely see some positive bits come from this especially on collaboration as for the next point Mobilized finance, well, that gets a bit sticky. You see, in 2009, wealthier nations promised to deliver $100 billion in aid to poorer countries each year by 2020 through the Green Climate Fund. Big surprise, but the pledges have not added up, and like Calvin Ball, for all the Bill Watterson fans out there, the rules keep changing on how that money can be used. As of the last accounting, wealthy nations had come up $20 billion short, sure. President Joe Biden announced the U.S. would contribute $5.7 billion to the fund this year, which is a massive increase from the previous administration, but still far short of the U.S.'s fair share of nearly $44 billion. Now, to complicate matters further, the fund itself has also come under fire for mismanagement which could set up for quite the row at COP26 over money and accountability. Now, the next point, adapting to protect communities and natural habitats will center around two basic tenets. The need to not only protect, but to restore ecosystems and to build resilient infrastructure and agricultural systems to avoid loss of livelihood, homes, and in some cases, lives. Think of it as a combination of defense systems as well as this is where we'll hear most talk about much-needed climate justice, especially when combined with the mobilizing finance part. Protection is where the safe money says we'll make the most progress at COP26. Finally, securing net zero by mid-century is a big one and is at the crux of the conference. This is going to be talked about in four categories, namely accelerating the phase out of coal, curtailing deforestation, speeding up the switch to electric vehicles, and encouraging investment in renewables. Now, the other half of that is formalizing 1.5 degrees C as a goal or leaving it as aspirational. Now, there have been a host of leaks with regards to various countries wanting to remove this target altogether, but while it is a potential outcome, I'm not going to speculate on who may be leading the charge when the conference opens. If I look at it objectively, I believe we could see some real wins in the first three areas. But if this conference is going to be a success and bring about the bold action many such as his excellency president whips of Palau has called for then the world needs to have hard targets set to get us rapidly to net zero will that happen you ask honestly that is up to the real commitment of the leaders of the nations of the world to look beyond their own lives as well as all the folks in the blue zone as for the rest of us well we'll just have to wait and see and That wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope this will serve as a primer or guide for any of you that are planning on following the conference. If you are actually headed to the green zone in Glasgow, give us a shout out. While we won't be there this year, who knows what next year brings. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, tell everyone at COP26 to keep it south of two degrees.